thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we are uh, continuing the study of the book of Numbers. We are in chapter 17 and 18. Tonight we're going to cover six points. The first one, the first three really regards the tests of the staff or the tests of the rod. And then, um, and so the, the first point, we'll look at the test of the rod that God had asked Moses to do. And that's verse 1 through 7 in chapter 17. And then we see the results of that test in chapter uh, 17, verse 8 through 11, and the people's react- reaction in chapter 17, verse 12 through 13. And after that, there is an extraordinary event that takes place, and that's chapter 18, where God speaks directly to Aaron. That's pre- probably the only place where God speaks to Aaron directly, not through Moses. Uh, and we will see why. Um, and so he speaks to Aaron about the responsibility of the priest. We'll understand better what is the role of a priest. And again, we're going to highlight one more time how God sees the liturgy. Because if Scripture is showing us something, if it's showing us anything, it is precisely what's important to God. When you read Scripture, you need to take that perspective. You have to learn to abandon your perspective, which is, how is it important to me? And see it from God's perspective. Because that's the only right perspective. We are all called to imitate Christ. And Christ told us He has come to do the will of the Father. Therefore, we're all called to do the will of the Father. The only way we can do the will of the Father is if we can see things from the Father's perspective. That's what Scripture helps us to do. Now, obviously, what is Blocking us, more often than not, are our vices. The tendencies that we have to sin, which obstruct the will of the Father in us. And the more we can clean up the mess, the more we can remove these obstacles, by our prayers, by our dedicated work, by our sacrifice, by all the things that show how we really want to do the will of God the Father, then the more we become, more we become like Christ. And we see things the way God sees them, not the way we see them. So, that's basically chapter 17. The three points is um, God speaking to Aaron, and then designating the priestly uh, perquisites, which are the things that will be owned by the priests. And then finally, 
talking to the, uh, to the Levites about their share in the promised land. So, chapter 17 is a short but a poignant chapter because it does hit home. Finally, they're getting it. Because up to this point, the Israelites have not gotten it yet. The test of the rod or the staff is asked for by God. God, in effect, is putting himself to the test. So instruct Moses, and he says to him, Say to all the heads of the tribes of Israel, Bring me a staff, bring me a rod. And let the tribe of Levi as well bring me a rod. And let the names of the chieftains be inscribed on those rods. And put them before the sanctuary. And the rod that will bud will be the one of the man I have chosen. That is the test that is happening here. Now, before we go into the, before we go into the details, I'd like to again remind you of a couple of things. First, God doing a supernatural thing does not necessarily imply that the ones who are receiving the supernatural action of God are saints. That is a very important rule to keep in mind. Because it will protect you against pride and gullibility. You have a dream about something that will happen to your sister, a premonition, your brother, or what have you. And you warn them not to drive a car or not to do something on that day. And it ends up being true. They, you've essentially saved your, your sister or your brother or your friend's lives. Great. Praise be to God. He used you. But that does not imply in any way, shape, or form that you are leading a holy life. That's really hard for us to understand. Because we want to be holy. We want holiness. We just don't want the cross. And so when this happens, we think that's it. Right? I struck home. I'm there. I'm done. No, it means nothing. What is the fruit of holiness? Anybody would want to major? A bet? Not the gifts. The fruits of the Holy Spirit. What are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit? Come on, let's see who knows those. It's actually not too difficult. Start with, start, start them in this order because it will help you. Start them in this order. This is a logical order. Piety. Start with piety. What is piety? Giving God what is His due. Simple as that. Piety, fear of the Lord. Piety, fear of the Lord. Okay. These two together, when you have them, lead you on to wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Right? Wisdom, understanding, or counsel, or knowledge. Right? These three, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, counsel, knowledge, right? And once you have these, and the piety and the fear of the Lord, 
you have judgment. And once you have judgment, you have courage. Yeah? Piety, fear of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and judgment? No. And then you have um, courage, which is the seven, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. But the seven fruits of the Holy Spirit are the virtues. Gentleness, meekness, patience, joy. This is how you know that you're growing in faith. It's the interior life that determines where you stand. It isn't your, ex- your outward actions. Once you really begin to integrate that into your spiritual life, you then focus on what's really essential, your growth in the virtues. That's the key. And we can see it here. God is going to perform a miracle. He's going to take a staff, a piece of dead wood. He will make it bud. He will make it flower. And He will make it produce fruits, almonds. That's what He's going to do. It's a miracle. Because He creates life out of a dead thing. A thing that on its own cannot produce life. And only God can do that. Only God can do that. But the reason why he's doing that is to stem the murmuring. He's doing it so that people will stop murmuring, meaning rebelling against him. So what is bringing the miracle? It isn't their faith. It's actually their lack of faith. So what is bringing the miracle about? It is his mercy. It's a show of mercy on God's part. But as I've told you before, whenever Our Lady appears, on the one hand, it's a wondrous thing, it's a wondrous event for all of us, it's a source of rejoicing. On the other hand, it's a little bit of an embarrassment. Because we have to bother the Mother of God to come and remind us of what we're supposed to know. You get it? Have you believed because you have seen Seen me, Thomas? Blessed are they who believe and have not seen. That is the blessing. When you don't experience miraculous things, when you don't experience extraordinary things, when you go about your daily life like everybody else, but everything in your life is a gift to God. Now that is a miracle. That is a miracle. So, remember this. And again, I told you in chapter 18, God is going to speak to Aaron. And who is Aaron? He's the high priest. He's the guy who a little uh, a while ago was with his sister Miriam, grumbling about his bro- brother. And he's the guy who was in charge of making the golden calf. And God is speaking to him. Do you get it? Do you understand why the church tends to be very, very slow and careful when it comes to private revelation? Because what matters isn't the message. What matters first and foremost is the interior transformation of the seer. Because if God is speaking to you, God is not stingy. He will transform you. If you truly are 
on your way to heaven. And always heed the words of Our Lady to Bernadette, Subiru, to Saint Bernadette. I promise to make you happy, but not on this earth. Yeah? Not on this earth. If you can accept that as a gift, not as a punishment, if you can accept that as a source of joy, not a source of dread, you're on your way. Because what she was telling Bernadette is that because she loves her so much, she wants to give her a happiness that is far greater than anything she can imagine. And by withholding happiness from her here, she multiplied it up there. Yeah? If you can understand and accept that and live by it, it makes a huge difference. Um, you know, I have a Canadian friend who I, I correspond with from time to time, and he was telling me that he... Um, um, he's also an IT. He's an IT guy. And he was telling me he had a really rough week. He's trying to solve a problem, and instead of solving the problem, the problem created, had many, many children, and it's been now a streak of six weeks where he's working 60, 70, 80 hours trying to get this problem solved, and it's not getting solved. Nothing he's doing is working. And he's getting, he told me he got really fed up really fed up because he was very tired. So he was, before the Blessed uh, uh, Sacrament, before Mass, praying to the Lord to get this problem solved. And then he said to me, I was kneeling before the tabernacle, and then right there and then, I got that simple sentence. You're saving souls. And instantly, everything changed. I mean, we can't remind ourselves of what St. Jose Maria Sriva said, finding God in the kitchen, finding God in little things you do, finding God in every frustration, every obstacle comes your way. And he's, he'd forgotten it because of the pressure. And he was reminded of this. So Sunday was a really happy day for him. Nothing was solved. He still had all these problems. But he realized suddenly that all that pain is actually fruitful. In ways he cannot see. But he knew it was fruitful. Some souls were being saved because of the pain he was going through. Remember that. So, it isn't because God is not talking to you that you're not on your way to heaven. And it isn't because God is talking to you that you are on your way to heaven. None of that matters. What matters is your virtues. Know your virtues Live your virtues and don't leave home without them. And again, one last thing on the virtues. It's not your big actions that matter. It's your small ones. Because that's where your virtues shine or don't shine. Somebody's talking to you and maybe putting a spin on... An, uh, he, he or she sees things differently. There was one piece of cake and you ate the piece of cake and... He's complaining to you, how could you have eaten a piece of cake? Why didn't you leave it to your brother? We're all tempted to defend ourselves, to explain. And we think we're doing real good if we actually explain civilly. We don't raise our voices. We don't, right, because we're explaining civilly. If you could, on that moment, get a hold of yourselves... Get a hold of yourself. Rein in the horses. Rein in the charge. 
Do not unleash the lawyers that live in you and see it from the perspective of the person talking to you. Truly see it from his perspective and apologize first. If you can do that, you're growing in virtue. It's a small thing. It's a piece of cake, isn't it? But sometimes it's really hard to swallow. That's what we're talking about here. You know, when you go to confession, right? I firmly resolve with the, with your, with the help of your grace to, to sin no more. Amend. What does amend my life means? If you don't have a plan of amendment, you're a hypocrite. If you say, I, pro- I, I amend my life, and you get out of the confessional, and you've forgotten all about it, and you have no practical actions that you're going to take, you're a hypocrite. And you're not really sorry for your sins. Are you? Sorrow means you're going to change. If you don't have... A, okay, next week I will not eat three pieces of cake. I'll eat two. That's good. That's realistic. And, Lord, as a penance to show you that I am really sorry, I'll drink tea without sugar. Good. Now you're serious. Do you understand? That's what we're talking about here. This is Exodus and Numbers. In, a, in summary, that's why we're studying it, to get to this point. Because what is causing these people to be where they are? It is precisely their refusal to listen, follow, and change. They were in Egypt. They got out of Egypt. Egypt is still in their hearts. They haven't made a case of amendment. God is laying it out for them. I'm going to give you the manna to weed you, to to get you out of your attachment to all these things. I'll take you to to the promised land. I'll give it to you. I'll do all these things for you. And they are still telling God, you're an assassin. You're a murderer. You took us out of Egypt to kill us here. Why? Virtues. Lack of virtues. That is, I think, what has been biting them. So then, God put this test before them, and they bring those rods to Moses. And every one of them bring a rod written, who has the name of the leader of the house. And the interesting thing is that, obviously, in verse 1, when it says, your father's house, your ancestral house, it designates the entire tribe. And the name of every man is written because really who is being attacked? It is Aaron. Remember, we said that last week. Their goal is to take over the high priest position because once in their position, they can then turn it the way they want. Every attack on ecclesiology is an attack on belief. Yeah? Every time we try to change the structure of the church, we want to change, we want to gain power over the church and do what we want. Right? We don't want the church in the image of God. We want the church in our own image. And no different there. So, Aaron's name is written on the staff of Levi, which indicates, therefore, that the entire tribe of Levi follows Aaron. Now remember, Korah was also a Levite. Right? So, the contest is, therefore, between Aaron and the other chieftains. 
who, despite the fact that 250 uh, um, of their colleagues had fallen last week right, in the fire, they are still reluctant to see Aaron as the head of the priesthood. Furthermore, there's a really interesting objection raised by the rabbis. They could have argued that it didn't matter which name from the Levites would have been written on the rod, the miracle would have happened. That is, the Levites would say, it's really a struggle between us, the Levites, and the rest. It isn't about Aaron. Implying by that, that anybody amongst the Levites could replace Aaron, and the same thing would have happened. Okay? However, God specifically said, write the name of Aaron on that rod. So God had undercut this whole argument for the Levites by specifically requiring that the name of Aaron be written on it. Already you can see that he expects the Levites to act differently than the rest of Israel. There is a higher standard set for them than for the rest of Israel. They should obey Aaron because God said so. That's an expectation. And we'll see that being reinforced in chapter 18. Verse 5, the man whom I choose. The man whom I choose. That's very important. It tells us that God chooses the high priest in that position. And therefore, you can see how Jesus himself reacted when Kepha, the high priest, was asking him a question when he put him under an oath. In the Jewish judicial system, the accused has no say. You could be standing as accused and you can say to your, the accusers, I've committed the crime. I killed her. I killed him. I stole. I did this. It, did, it has no weight, no value. What matters is the witness of two. You, you need the concording witness, uh, witnessing of two people for the accusation to hold. In the case of Jesus, the high priest bypassed that, broke the, the law, and asked Jesus by putting him under oath. And because it is the high priest, Jesus obeyed. Yeah? So, let's not put ourselves over and above our Lord when we're dealing with a priest. Our role is not to raise our voice, disrespect, or tell the priest what, how we think he should be running the church. Jesus didn't do any of that. We may advise, gently, we may suggest, if our suggestions are received, we certainly can pray and offer sacrifices. Now, if you are in a parish where things are really going south, or going where they're not supposed to go, and you have little kids, you are at liberty to go and seek another parish for the sake of your children. If you have no children, or your children are grown up, you may be spiritual warriors and stay where you are and pray for that priest for the things to change, right? God calls you for different services in his church. But notice the importance of the respect owed to priests and people in authority in general because God put them there. All right. Verse 8. The rod sprouts, blossoms, and produces almond. Why did you think almond was picked? What's so, speci- what's so special about almond? First fruits. First fruits. The almond tree blossoms way earlier than any other trees. So what is indicated here 
is that these are the first fruits. Right? This man will bring forth the first fruits, which are the Levites. Okay? And by the way, there's a really nice um, tradition about St. Joseph that when they needed to find a, a husband for Our Lady, they brought the men into the temple. Simeon was the priest. And he stood there and he asked them to bring forth their staffs and that of St. Joseph blossomed. That's why you see St. Joseph standing with a staff that has a lily on it. All right? it, it harkens back to this episode where God indicated the man he chose in a supernatural fashion. So, once, these rods, once this rod has blossomed, God tells Moses that this will be kept in the sanctuary. And it is kept in the sanctuary really as a warning, as a safekeeping, but also as a warning. As a warning to anyone who may be tempted to murmur against Aaron. Who gets into, into the sanctuary? And who else? The sanctuary is the holy, not the holy of holies. The Levites. Yeah, so who are going to be tempted to murmur? The Levites. Right? More so than anybody else. It's the Levites who will be tempted to murmur. Right? So God has made this miracle for, the, for Israel... But on an ongoing basis, it's a remembrance to the Levites about the structure, the order that God created. And it's not up to them to come and tamper with it and change it. In verse 10, we see the word rebels. Really, the, the, the literal word is uh, uh, B'nai Mary, meaning rebellious children. And oftentimes, the prophet Ezekiel would call Israel, and that's kind of very interesting for uh, those of you who are from Lebanon, would call Israel Beit Meri, rebellious house. So the reason I'm saying this is because in Lebanon there is this town called Beit Meri. And I really don't know if there is a connection, but it makes for a fascinating story. That it is called Beit Mary. It's a yeah, rebellious house or rebellious line. Uh, it is one of Ezekiel's fundamental theses that, ca- that each generation, beginning with the wilderness and down to his own, has rebelled against the Lord and his commandments. Ezekiel, who is the only prophet and priest, the only one of all the prophets to be actually a priest of the sanctuary, has seen that every generation has been rebellious. Right? Now, this is also true of us. Right? It's true of a, it should be true of us to a lesser degree, but it is also true of us. Um, Father Paul Kay, who wrote a, the book called a mystery, Hidden, a mystery Hidden Before the Ages, I think I got the title right, amazing book. In this book, Father Kay talks about the effect of original sin on the embryo, the baby in the womb. And I will, at one point, once I'm done with the book, uh, presumably give a series of lectures on the content of the book because it is magnificent. It is 
what the Jesuit order was meant to be. He is a Jesuit priest, and he also was, he passed away, he was uh, Father Pacwa's spiritual director, I found out. Um, incredible man. Uh, he, has a, he holds a PhD in theology, and he holds also a PhD in physics from MIT. Incredible man. The one thing he says about the, wo- the womb in this part that I'm reading about is that when the baby is in the womb, the baby finds only himself to love. Because that's the only thing he knows about. Now, he's not talking, he's not saying that the baby is conscious and saying these words to himself. But in a psychic level, the baby is attracted by that which is good and pulled away by that which is not good. And it's all centered upon himself. So when the baby is born, there is already psychically built into him the tendency to love that which is lovable and to shy away from that which is not lovable. And therein lies the problem. Because when he does that, he's basically decreed that only that which is lovable should be loved. Hence, somebody who has leprosy should not be loved. Somebody who is deformed should not be loved. Somebody who is on the cross should not be loved. So built into the baby is a principle of self-love that is set against the law of charity. You shall love the Lord your God and then your neighbor as yourself. Well, from the very beginning, as the baby is formed in the womb, and as the synapses in the brains are being formed by the psychic um, um, construct that the baby is in, the law of selfishness is written in our genes. That's how the effect of original sin is communicated down. He contrasts that, Father K contrasts that to a situation where someone, a baby, is con- conceived in grace, like Our Lady. The fundamental difference is that when a child is conceived in grace, he is in the friendship of God. Therefore, God will visit the soul of that child as he did Adam in the garden. Hence, from the very moment of conception, the child is never alone. Even though there is no way for the child to express himself, the brain is not yet formed, right? Remember, the brain is not the seat of wisdom. The brain is the muscle through which intelligence, which is rooted in the soul, can express itself. But that does not mean that the soul cannot be sensitive to the presence of God the way our eyes may be sensitive to light, even though we may not be necessarily paying attention to it. But we are surrounded by light, and it nourishes us. So, the love of God surrounds the baby, and therefore the baby is oriented towards God, not himself. Hence, from the moment of conception, the law of charity is inscribed in the heart of the baby. So when we are born... We are already born with a natural tendency to tend to ourselves. It doesn't mean, we have to be careful, it doesn't mean we are born with enmity towards God, as if we hate Him. That's not the case. There need not be hatred of God. But the tendency to love ourselves 
is far greater than the tendency to love God and our neighbor. So at the moment of baptism, baptism begins the restoration that will last a lifetime. Makes it possible for us to reverse that tendency, to grow in a life of charity, to learn to love others even when we don't think they are lovable. Back to the cake that I told you about earlier. That's the drama of human nature. That's the problem we're facing, but by the power of Jesus Christ and His sacraments, the power that Jesus gives us in His sacraments, in the sacraments of the church, are far greater than the obstacle we're facing. That's the good news. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead in His glorified body is the sure sign that we can triumph over all these obstacles. If we have faith in Him and if we are willing and able to exercise this faith the way He expects us to. Yeah? Now, once everyone looks at the, come and inspects the rods and sees that yes, it is the name of Levi, it is the name of Aaron that is written on that rod that had budded, which is a sure sign that God has chosen him. Um, and by the way, both in the Egyptian and Phoenician temples, there were rods, there were staffs. So that notion of a staff was known to most of the cultures around them and staffs were imbued with magical powers. Okay? But in this case, the fact that God has actually done something quite natural, which is bringing forth almonds, is a sure sign that indicates that this dead thing cannot do that, and therefore it is the in- in- intervention of God that made that happen. Hence, the staff in and of itself is not important. What is important that it is stands as a sign to God's miraculous intervention. So notice that that effort that started in Genesis, where God is cleaning out the superstition and the false beliefs into forces and spirits that animate this world, continues. We've seen it in Genesis, we've seen it in Exodus, we see it here. It's an ongoing process to wean Israel from any uh, relationship to something that would be magical. Magic is nothing more than a trick. It's a cheap trick and it's a cheat. All right? That's what it is. Now that I've seen that, what is the reaction? The last two verses. And this is so emblematic of the problem they're facing. Watch. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish, we are undone, we are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? What is their reaction? Despair. You, you, you can see right now the shadow of Judas. Despair. They, they are calling judgment upon themselves. We're all undone. Isn't the Lord there? So on the one hand, there is fear, which is good. Because now they're realizing who they're dealing with. Up to this point, they were taking God a little bit for granted. Now they realize what they're dealing with, which is good. But that did not lead them towards piety, towards filial love, towards a, a true devotion 
and love of God. It actually moved them away. God now is the master of whom, whom we shall fear, and there is no love involved. You understand? So that's where they are. This is the state they live in. It's a state of fear. Now, they will not even get close to the tabernacle. They won't even go in it. How does God react? As usual, he started with the plan A. Go tell Pharaoh, I want you to come out three days, hence, and sacrifice. That didn't work. Went to plan B, and went to plan C, and on and on and on. And here we're about plan Z. Chapter 18. What does God say? What does, what does God say? How does he react to this? So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity in connection with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity in connection with your priesthood. So, what is the first and foremost role of a priest? To bear iniquity. To bear iniquity. Where do we see this expression? He bore our trespasses. He bore our iniquities. Isaiah, chapter 53, on the suffering servant. What did Jesus come? What did he do when he came to earth? Behold the Lamb of God who the sins of the world. He bore our iniquities. Therefore, a priest is called to what? Come on, I want to hear it. Bear. Okay. Now, now, let me ask you this question. According to our first Pope, St. Peter, what are you? You are hmm, hmm, and hmm. We've talked about them already. The three hmms. Priests, prophets, and kings. So what are you? Yeah, you're priests. That is the difference between the old and the new. In the old, only the priests could be holy. Only the priests could be called holy. The twelve tribes... Could not. In the new, it changed. So you share in the royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, what are you supposed to do? Bear the iniquity. Yeah. Now, this is God's perspective. This is God's perspective. Yes. What, what is a priest? The question is, are we priests? We are priests. Are we part of the ordained priesthood? No. But we are priests. What, does a, what is the function of a priest? Yes, and what else? What is the first function of a priest? Offer sacrifice. Do we offer sacrifice? Don't we? Yeah, we do. What is the second function of a priest? Praise God. Yes. Do you have access to the Holy of Holies? Well, yeah, you do. I mean, don't you receive Jesus Christ in the tabernacle? You receive Him in communion. How more closer do you want to get? Yeah? Okay. Do you have power intercession? Can you stand before the tabernacle of our Lord and intercede for your brothers and sisters? Yeah? You actually have more power than Aaron would ever have. Why? You go to the king's mom. You can 
You have access to the queen. You have access to the queen. You have access to the king's father. Does that make you powerful? In intercession? Yeah. Yes. That is the priesthood that we all received. No longer are we under the Aaronite priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. That was done with. Right? All right. Yes. Oh, how do you know if you're called to an ordained priesthood? That is a very good question. And having, not having had that call, I would have to preface my response to you by saying I've never experienced it, so I may not be your best source. But um, I can tell you the, f- four, the four things that one has to do in any one of these questions. So it's a more generic question, answer, and you probably want to hear it from a priest. But first, you pray. You ask this question, and you're open to God's will, and you pray. Am I? Second, you talk to men of experience. So mostly priests, good priests, who have received the call. How did you know you were a priest? They'll be able to tell you. Third, after more discernment, you you see if if there is a drive in you that makes you peaceful, if it gives you peace of mind. If it's something that accords with you and says, this is who I am. God will give you peace with this decision. And if that's the case, you try it and see where it takes you. So with these four things in combination, you can't go wrong. So you might start with a retreat. Find an order, a good order. Go have a retreat there for a week. Pray. Watch. Participate in the prayers and see if God is calling you. That's, that's usually a good way and it's pretty much what happens to a lot of young men who are discerning a calling to the priesthood. And the one thing I would say to you is this. God tells them, listen then, verse 7, And you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. So in this case, the consecrated priest is one who wants to serve. It's a call of service. But then the Lord adds, I give your priesthood as a gift. It's a gift. And it's a precious gift. The priests are always the favorites of Our Lady. Because they are the closest in imitating her sons. Her son. They're the closest. It's a Amazing gift that God bestows upon men he chooses for the priesthood. Okay? So, in essence, in chapter 18, he tells them, you will be priests, you will be consecrated, and your role as a priest is to bear the iniquity. Why? So that plagues do not break out in the camp. Plagues do not break out in the camp. The priests act as a buffer between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And you do understand now that without this mechanism of the covenant with blessings and curses, we cannot even begin to understand why plagues would break in a, in a, in a, in a camp. It would seem obscure, but it is the covenant that gives meaning to this. So, God's presence is a blessing for those who follow Him, but it's a curse for those who don't. 
It's radioactive. And the role of the priest is to stand as a buffer so that the tabernacle may not be desecrated. Because when it is desecrated, plagues break out in the camp. I haven't done that, but I do wonder if I can't establish a correlation between the breakdown in the church and the rise of all these different and strange diseases that we see these days. The the fact that we in the church receive sacrilegious communions lead me to believe, and that's my own personal opinion, I'm just giving you my own opinion right now, based on some reflection, that there is increase of diseases and disorders outside. It's correlated. One leads to the other. You see it from God's perspective. I, I want When you go back home, read that chapter again and just watch how God is jealous about that sanctuary. How He do not, do not, how He, how he does not put up with Sins approaching the altar. And he barely, barely puts up with the priests themselves. And they can't even be in front of the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest and once and, you know, with fear and trembling. Because he might be struck dead. If we can integrate that vision that God has of the church, if we can see the church the way he sees her, then the graces will come into our hearts and He will transform our soul into a stone fitting for His church. There is no real growth and virtue without true devotion to the church and a true devotion to the Mass. It's, 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 it's impossible. Because that's the source and summit of all the spiritual life. It's the Mass. And without the Mass, there is no growth and holiness. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no satisfaction. So, again, I urge you to take your Sunday Mass very seriously. In the way you dress, in the way you behave in the liturgy, to participate, to be present, to give glory to God. From there, so many blessings will flow upon you and your family. Because you're giving God the glory. That is the main thrust of this chapter. There are a lot of details given about who will do what. The Levites will be there to support you, priests. They'll be there to protect. And there is a set of rules given that would also protect the community from a priest who's entering the precinct and he... The priest is not in is, is is ritually unclean. There is protection against that. According to the rabbis, with the second temple, if a ritually unclean priest would dare enter the the holy, it was the assistants to the priest, the ones who are in training to become a priest, who would come and grab him and take him out in the court, and I'm quoting literally, smash his brains with rods. He was instantly put to death. They took it very seriously. 
We've turned it into a circus. You know that your devotion to Jesus in the Eucharist is growing when your own suffering grows because of what you see happening at the end of Mass. You know that you're truly devoted to Jesus in the Eucharist when you are willing not to talk to someone, even if they think you're rude, inside the church. You're taking Him seriously. So, at the end of this chapter then, what happens? When we began the whole journey, God spoke to Moses, and He invited all of Israel to the mountain. Israel said, whoa, no, 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 no. That's too scary. We will stay down here at the foot of the mountain. Moses, you go up. So Moses went up the mountain, and he took with him 70 elders, who sat and ate with God. Then the golden calf happened, at which point the priesthood was taken away from Israel and given only to the Levites. So now, who is between Israel and God? The Levites. And who's between the Levites and God? Moses. And who's between Moses and God? The Holy of Holies. Right? The Shekinah. What have we just done now? We've added yet another intermediary. Before, Israel would enter the court. At least the outer court. Where they would give the... Now, no longer. They're not even entering the outer court. They come at the door where they talk to the guards who are, holding, who are holding spears standing by. And if any one of those guys, any of the Israelites would actually dare push through, they'd kill him right there on the spot. And then within the, the tabernacle, the Levites are there to protect the priests. And the priests are there to protect each other from each other. How does that sound? That's how God sees sin. He has to put all these um, firewalls to protect us from Him. You understand? If you think this way, then if you have a fallen away Catholic who tell, tells you that he's going to a Protestant community, um really pray before you invite him into the church. Pray about it. Because maybe that's where he needs to be at this point. And by being in that Protestant community, at least he's not offending the Lord in the church. You understand? It's a two-way street. Always remember that. And hopefully, maybe being with this community, he'll start to take his faith seriously. He'll start to have a prayer life. He'll understand that Jesus is important. And maybe, bit by bit, he'll be led back home. And when he would walk back through this door, he understand who he's dealing with. Yeah? I've spoken to you about the consecration to Our Lady. And I've told you, I recommend it very carefully. In these 15 years, I think I've only told two people, maybe three, they should go through the consecration. You know why? St. Louis de Montfort, who's one of the saints who've written about the consecration of the Lady, is very specific. And he says that if anybody goes to the consecration to Our Lady and does not live up to those vows that he takes, then his state would end up being much, much worse 
than had he not done that consecration. It follows the same pattern. Do you understand? God will not be mocked. Now look, I am saying this because the more you take God seriously, the more you will work on those virtues. And the more God will bless you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I do not mean it as being terrified. I mean it being awed and being careful. And doing an examination of conscience. Because you do not want to offend Him. You understand? Yeah, it starts there. And then He does the rest. And it's a great journey. It's a great journey. Pardon? Yes, you, you know, the question is, can we say fear with love? And you would notice, I seldom use the word love in my study. I seldom do that. And it is simply because we live in, an epo- in, in a period where that word is so overused and badly used that we have to counterbalance. If we're living in a, in a period dominated by a Jansenistic a heresy. The Jansenists would not give communion to anyone maybe once a year. Right? And only if maybe you walked barefoot for 300 kilometers and you've done, you, you fasted for 40 days and crazy things like that. Right? You'd be hearing me talk about the exactly opposite way. I am emphasizing one part because the Bible study is done in a context. And the context that we live in is one where we use love as an excuse for license licentiousness. We no longer mean love, we mean licentiousness. Meaning, the desire to do whatever we please. Because, fundamentally, what is love? Love is to be on the cross. That is love. Right? What is the difference between passion and love? That's another one of those confusion. Right? People want passion. They don't understand what they're asking for. Right? The passion, the 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 root of the word in Latin means to suffer. Well, what is love? Love is also to suffer. What's the difference? Really simple. Passion is suffering for one's own cause. Love is suffering for the other. That's it. So this is why you don't hear me mention this word that much, because we need so much to understand God's justice, God's wrath, God's holiness, before we get to the love bit, which flows from all of those, these things. Yeah? Oftentimes, during Mass, at the beginning of Mass, Latin rite, you'll hear a priest say, let us ask God forgiveness for His full of compassion and love. And I cringe when I hear these words these days. I wish they would say... Let us ask God for forgiveness because He is holy and wrathful. I wonder if the priest were to say that, we would not suddenly jolt, get a jolt and, okay, let me really ask Him for forgiveness this time. My point is that, yes, God is full of love and compassion, absolutely. But the problem is we take Him for granted. We take God for granted. God is full of love and compassion, therefore, His innocuous. God is never going to hurt me. Nothing ever bad is going to happen to me. 
God is not my problem. Money is. Or people are. Or whatever. Right? We don't take Him seriously. And you see the results. I went yesterday. I am a a, um, sponsor for a young girl who is going to be doing her um, confirmation. And I'm sitting and I'm watching these kids. And you know, just by the way they're dressed and the way they behave, they don't take God seriously. They'll take the rock star seriously and Facebook seriously. Not God. Because it's full of compassion and love. What do you expect? That's the problem. All right, how about we finish with a word of prayer and we can take some questions. Yes. So the question is, why don't we hear so much about the fear of God? Remember, in the 19th century, especially in France, they were suffering from the Jansenistic heresy, which insisted so much on the fear of God, so as to almost make him um, a, almost a, um, an, an unapproachable master. Here in the United States, you had the Puritans. And the Puritans' view of the body and anything to do with it also made God an unapproachable master. So there were abuses in that sense. And because of that, there was an attempt to correct. And the correction was that we need to make sure people understand that God loves them and God wants them in heaven, which is great. And, uh, and, um, and I think it is necessary. What happened, though, and I, that's why I don't necessarily... Uh, put the blame on the clergy themselves, or I, I don't make it be the responsibility of the clergy, what happened is because of the sexual revolution that took place, licentiousness replaced any notion of understanding of love. And it became the norm. So that even today when the priests say God is full of love and compassion, that word is not carrying forward. Because really if he says love, people should think of the cross. But they don't. They think warm fuzzy. Because they're conditioned now by their understanding of love coming from the outside. In. Um, it's going to take time to correct, and the correction will not happen first by the clergy. It will happen in our families. Because this is also a crisis of fatherhood, of men willing to be fathers, and in being the moral compass within their families. Men who will tell their wives and their girls how to dress appropriately or how not to dress appropriately. It is also a crisis of femininity. We talked about that. Women now outnumber men in the working um, in, in the workforce. Therefore, the satisfaction of a woman is now more and more derived from her ability to work and to be fulfilled in her work, which there's nothing absolutely wrong with this. You know, I'm all for equal salary, equal opportunity for men and women. Absolutely. Justice demands it. The, the thing, though, that is now escaping women, that's where the tragedy is, is the spiritual discernment of the uh, grandeur of motherhood. They are missing the boat. So they have all the candies in front of them. They're going for the candies when the real food is here, which is motherhood, and being at home and taking care of the kids. That has become now almost is synonymous for oppression. Because of the abuse, again, that had happened before. Right? Where women in home didn't have any rights. They, if the man divorced them, he, he had all the say. And on and on and on it went. So there were corrections that were required. Unfortunately, those corrections went so far now that the conception of femininity has shifted. That is a problem. 
that's a problem. And I told you, it's really, really hard to correct. I don't know what's going to take to correct it. Uh, I'm not, I'm usually a very optimistic kind of guy, but on this one, I am not that optimistic because, as I said earlier, most Catholic women do not want to put the veil, don't want to dress only in, mostly in dress and not in pants, because pants are the icon of power, independence. Women now want to be made in the image of man instead of being made in the image of Our Lady. And on and on it goes. And it's so deeply encrusted now in both men and women. So I'm not laying the blame on women here, I'm just both, that the family is deformed. Now when the family is deformed, the foundation of society is deformed. It's going to take a real act on, of mercy on God's part to fix this mess. Because it is a mess. So how is that going to come about? I don't know. But our job is to continue to proclaim the truth and to seek the truth and to understand the truth. That God in his love is also calling us to holiness. And true love is a call to holiness. And therefore holiness demands that we be mindful of who God is. But if we don't know ourselves, if we've lost track of who we really are, our true identity, what is our real calling, how can we do that? We're confused. So we're going to be confused about God. So it goes more than the priest or the bishop from the pulpit telling people because it's just going to come through one ear or the other. It's not going to register. The, 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 the habitual vices that we've now acquired and we've made them a good are so strong that unless we change, we're not going to hear them. Am I making sense? Yes. Yes, you do. You should. But as with everything else, you're dealing with habits. And anyone who's realistic about habits knows it takes time to correct. You just have to accept that. Now, God can inter intervene miraculously and on the spot instill in somebody's heart the fear of God and then they change right there. Now, that may not be permanent, but it may be permanent, right? Absolutely. Unless he does something like this, our job is to also be realistic and set out a plan that says, okay, I'm going to be rid from this thing in a year. So in order to do that, now how, what should I do this month and next and the third, right? Somebody smoking may be able to stop cold turkey, right? Maybe there are now medicine that can help you stop, the, I don't know, right? But if there isn't, Okay, I've been smoking a pack a day, and I'm going to drop it down one cigarette for the first two weeks. I'm going to drop another cigarette. Now, in that, you're exercising virtue. You're being faithful. You're actually suffering because of this. You are making a real effort. You're showing God that you love Him, that you're serious about it. You want to change. There's a lot of good to come out of that effort. Yeah? Okay. Yes. Okay. The question is, if the priest is not telling the parents to... Um, fear God, how will the parents know? Because they're raising their children thinking they're doing the right thing. Is that the gist of your question? You see, if I were to tell you or I or anybody here that tomorrow you will be employed by NASA and you will be paid $2 million every month, uh, would you... Would you think that you would know what are the things you should do and not do to keep your job? Would you need somebody to tell you that? Would you? Really? You wouldn't learn it on your own? You wouldn't go and research it and I would research it, 
Yeah? Wouldn't you want to find out everything you can about NASA? Okay. You understand? We have no excuses. We're priests, prophets, and king. In, um, I think it is St. Peter that tells us very clearly, you do not need anyone to instruct you anymore. You have the Holy Spirit. So when you're faithful to the covenant of marriage, the Holy Spirit will lead you. Either you bump in, in people, you read books, you will find out. Now obviously, it's always a gift when you have a holy priest that sets the record straight. But that's a gift. If the people are living a sinful life, why should God waste a good priest on them? Let me put it this way and be blunt. We get the priests we deserve. Always remember that. No, no. I'm stalking. You're right. We got Jesus. We didn't deserve him. That's exactly. You're making my point. Right? And now we're repeating this thing. So God says, okay, I'm going to give you the priests you deserve just so you can wake up and come to me and ask me for what you really need. The same pattern repeats, right? Yeah. So, no, we have everything we need. You, just do, you have to be committed to studying your faith. On your own, without requiring anyone to tell you anything. Yeah? Remember, we come to Mass not to be educated. The purpose of the sermon is not to educate us. This is not Sunday school. The purpose of the sermon is to inflame our hearts so that we can fulfill our Sunday obligation, which is to give glory to God. That's what we come to Mass for. Yeah? We do Bible studies, we do readings, we find good books, we focus our life on God, ask the Holy Spirit to come in, Our Lady through the Rosary, to lead us and teach us and open our mind and transform us as we go. You know, God is not expecting perfection from us on day one or, you know, day 10 or year 10, right? But what He's expecting from us is to constantly search for Him. And sincerely learn what his church teaches. And if we do those things, he will do the rest. So, pick up an encyclical, start reading with your husband. Make it a point. Every night, read a paragraph. Discuss it. Pick up the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Read it with your husband. Discuss it. Form a small group at home. Invite your friends. You're showing God you love him. Yeah? Yes. And kings. We share in the kingship of Jesus Christ. He calls us, he no longer calls us his servants, he calls us his friends and children of his father. Therefore, we are of the royal household. Right? We belong to the house of the king. And if you belong to the house of the king and a younger sister to the older brother, brother who is the, 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 the heir to the throne, what are you? What do, we, what do they call you? Princess. That's what you are. That's, in that sense, we share in his kingship. Yeah? We have, we have access to the throne of the Father through Jesus Christ. Exactly. And uh, I think it's Bishop Sheen who said that it is that the loss of a soul in heaven is far worse than if the entire galaxies and all the stars in them were to be destroyed. Because at the end of the day, the whole universe is finite. It will come to an end. But a soul lives forever. Yeah. Question?
Yes, absolutely. You're right. So the, the tassels they had to have to remind them of the law of God is a symbol of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that leads us in all truth. Right? And that is an important principle that we always have to remember, provided we do not divorce it from this other principle that says, we must know what the church teaches. We must know what the principles of the faith are. We must know what we ought to believe. Because otherwise, we can be misled into saying what the Holy Spirit leads me here or there or, the, or, 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 or whatever. Right? There is no Holy Spirit apart from the church. Hence, the truth has to be in us. When we do that, yes, the Holy Spirit absolutely is, a, is, is dwelling in our soul and inspires us to the good. That is absolutely true. Sure. No, no. You see, the, the question is, um, if I understand correctly, you know, what it would take for the baby to be in a state of grace. If the parents are in a state of grace, does this mean the, the child is in a state of grace when he's conceived? The answer is no. The child is always born in feeling the effect of original sin. When the child is conceived, I mean, I'm sorry, when the child is conceived, that, con- that conception, when it happens, the child lacks charity, faith, and hope. He doesn't have those virtues. Therefore, he grows outside of them. And he needs baptism to receive these uh, virtues and be in a state of grace. No. Baptism is necessary for salvation. No one can be saved without baptism. Therefore, again, I'll remind you, children who die unbaptized, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, will not make it to heaven. Because you cannot make it to heaven without indwelling grace in your soul. And there is no indwelling grace in your soul without the effects of the holy sacrifice of our Lord on the cross. That is what brings about the indwelling grace in our soul. Because if you could say that a child who is not baptized makes it to heaven, you're basically saying that the death and the passion, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ are not necessary for salvation. And that is obviously against all the dogmas of the church. Hence, no, it is not sufficient. So, there are two opinions. One opinion is that children, babies who die unbaptized, will live on earth in a state of natural beatitudes. Meaning that it will be as happy as can be. They will not feel or any lack in their happiness. But they will not be, they will be deprived of the beatific vision. They will not see God the way he is. St. Augustine, on the other hand, states that no, they do go to hell because of the lack of grace in them. The church typically tends to side with St. Thomas Aquinas. The only area that I don't know how to reconcile with the position of St. Thomas, but then he didn't deal with it as much as we do today, is in the case of abortion. Because when a mother aborts her baby, she's basically cursing him. And as we saw with Korah, and his own children, the earth opened and swallowed them, and scripture says they went to Sheol live, all of them. So the relationship between parents and child is very important. And I also remind you that if God were to take that away, he's basically taking away free will. If my actions cannot harm anybody, there's no free will. You get it? God gave us free will, he will not take it away. That's a gift that he gave us. We misused it. We can't blame him for it. You understand? We can't say how God permits this. He gave us a gift. It'd be like, I give my son, who is 20, let's say, 
a car as a gift. Now he takes it, and then he totals it by misusing the car. And then he comes back and blames me because I gave him the gift. Now that case happened. Um, There was this family who was actually very poor, and they won the lottery. Lots of money. They bought their their first older son a Lamborghini or some sort of a fast car. Maybe not a Lamborghini. A fast car. Drunk. Totaled it. Died. Bought their second car. The second son, a fast car. Drunk. Totaled it and died. They turned around and sued the Lotto company for having let them win the Lotto. I don't know if they did or not. I hope they didn't. But that's, that's precisely, that is precisely this mentality. We look at, how could he have done that? It's a wonderful gift that he gave us. Remember, when he gave us, Adam had not sinned. He was not supposed to. You understand? So we suffer the consequences. Yes, there are consequences. It isn't free. Yeah, we hurt people with our sins. Sin is a hurtful thing to us and others. If you can realize that, guess what? We'll think twice before sinning next time. We'll think twice before raising our voice angrily. Because we're hurting somebody. Yeah. Okay, so the, uh, we can't speak anymore of unclean priests today. When I spoke of an unclean priest, I meant it for the Levitical priesthood. Because back then, there were laws that you had to follow to be clean or unclean. Today, you speak of someone in a state of grace or in a state of sin or serious sin, right? And yes, you're right. When a priest is in a state of sin, let's even take a case where a priest does not believe in the Eucharist. He doesn't believe that what he does has any effect. Okay? It doesn't matter. Because the sacrament affects, has power to do what it's supposed to do by itself. Right? That's how Jesus willed it. Now, having said that, though, I told you this a number of times, the effect of the Mass, the fruits of the Mass in our soul, depend to a certain degree about the holiness of the priest. Right? It's the holiness of the Pope, the holiness of the Bishop, the holiness of the priest, and the congregation. So, the way the graces flow are affected by the life of a priest. So if the priest is in a state of sin, fewer graces flow to us. No, no, no. Uh, the question is, uh, some folks baptize their child, and then they later on heard something about the priest, and now they want to baptize the child. No. Baptism it happens once again. It has nothing to do. An atheist can't do baptism. In emergencies, in cases of emergencies, if, let's say, a nurse is walking by a hospital and this man wants to be baptized and she's an atheist, she doesn't believe in anything, she's a Buddhist, she's a Muslim, she's a Jew, she can be whatever she needs to be, as long as she uses the water and uses the right words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and if she doesn't believe it, baptism takes place. It's the right matter, water, and the right form, what she says. When that, when that is said, baptism has, happens. And therefore, the baptism is valid regardless of what the priest was doing or not doing. Okay? Yes. Yes. Even if the, you go to a priest who committed murder, let's hope not, provided he follows the form, and I absolve you from your sin in the name of the Father, Son, and Lord, you're absolved. It, has not, it is not related to the sanctity of the priest. 
the sacraments operate on their own, by their own power. Because it's the power of Jesus Christ. The seven sacraments, right? So, there are, there are three baptisms for essentially spiritual confirmation or nourishment. These are baptism, Holy Eucharist. Two sacraments for healing. These are exactly confession, penance, or, you know, and the healing of the sick. Right? We're at five. And there are two sacraments for vocation. And these are matrimony and holy orders. Yeah? Those are the seven sacraments. Yes. Is that true in case of miscarriage? Very good question. Thank you for bringing it up. No. No. Why? Why is it not true in the case of miscarriage? So what was exactly? It is called baptism by desire. The parents desire to baptize their child. So it was, it, the baby was received as a blessing. Now miscarriage happened, but because of the intent of the parents, the father respects the covenant and extends that power to the child. The church says if you can find the, 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 um, the baby and it, the body is still warm, baptize him right away. But even if you don't, it's covered by the covenant that the parents took before God. Remember? That's the power of the covenant. Yeah. So there's a difference. The church says this. There are three baptisms, three ways of baptism. And I'm not going to go into the technicalities. But there's a baptism by water, which is the normal baptism. Then there's a baptism of desire. You desire to be baptized. And then there's a baptism by blood. When you actually give your life for Christ by saving others. These are the three ways in which you can be baptized. But without baptism, you cannot go to heaven. I'd like you to look more into it, and we can talk more about it. Okay? Yes. The question is, if you're an Anglican or a, or, or a, um, or a, a Protestant, you, when you convert, you may not necessarily go through the uh, rite of baptism. True, if the baptism was according to form, as I said earlier, the baptism is valid. Baptism does not require a priest. And in, you're in a hospital, your friend is having a baby, the baby is, is born and, and the baby is going to die. As sure as we're standing here, the baby is dying. You take water, I baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the baby is baptized. If they are baptized, that's why they f- you need to find out. Have you been baptized? Yes. Do you have a, ba- r- a baptismal record? Yes. How were you baptized? You talk to the, to the pastor. If the pastor is not around, if the, um, if the person doesn't remember, it's been a long time, you do what is called conditional baptism. And that happens. Just in case this person wasn't baptized, we're, we're making sure, we're taking precaution. It's called conditional baptism. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.